Um, you know, there is uh, outside my study, uh, across the hall, there's a mechanical room. It's a utility room. And when you walk in, there's a sticker on the mechanical wall there uh, that is a warning. It says, warning, danger, high voltage, you know, be very careful here, you could die. Basically, which seems a little over the top. Uh, but the reason for a warning sign is to make you aware there's danger so that you will avoid it. That's the whole point of having a danger sign, having a warning sign. And I, it occurs to me that there's lots of warnings in scriptures, in the scriptures. There's lots of times where the Bible says, beware of this, stay on guard for that, be alert of this, be vigilant. Warning, there's danger here. And historically, Tragic things happen when warnings are ignored. Right at the beginning, in, in Genesis chapter 2, God creates everything. He puts Adam and Eve in a garden, and he says, Genesis 2, verse 17, you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for when you eat of it, you will surely die. Warning! Danger! And you know the story. We didn't even get through the next chapter, and they're eating it, and they paid the price for not heeding the warning. And indeed, all of humanity and all of creation is still paying the price for not heeding that warning. Very next chapter, Genesis 4, there's these two guys, two brothers, Cain and Abel. They bring their sacrifices to God. Um, God is pleased with Abel's, and, and Cain is kind of down. And God says, look, if you do the right thing, you'll be accepted too. And then God warns him. Genesis 4, verse 7, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must master it. Very next verse, we have the first murder in the Bible. Very next verse, he didn't heed the warning. And because he didn't heed the warning, he paid the price. After God had rescued, later in the story, after God had rescued his people out of Egypt and they're on their way to the promised land, he says, warning, be careful that when you get there, don't forget God. Don't forget the Lord your God. When you're prosperous, when you're in the land of milk and honey and you've got houses, you've got spouses, you've got children and grandchildren, and, and, you, and you're producing wealth, don't forget I'm the one that gives you the ability to gain wealth. And it says it this way, Deuteronomy 8 verse 19, if you ever forget the Lord your God and follow other gods and worship and bow down to them, you will surely be destroyed. And it wasn't that he was mad at them. It was just, I love you enough to warn you. Be careful. If you forget the Lord your God, you're going right back into slavery. And you know the story. They didn't heed the warning. And they ended right back in exile. The list could go on and on, both in biblical history as well as history after the Bible up till now. But the central core is this. It is dangerous to ignore a warning from God. We disregard warnings at a terrible price to ourselves and our loved ones because tragic things can happen. At the risk of sounding a little grandiose here, I, I want to talk to you this morning about a very real danger for those who know Jesus. Okay, the irony of this danger that I'm going to talk about is that the better you know him or the longer you've walked with him, the bigger this danger is. It is the danger of familiarity. Now, when I said that, if you just thought to yourself, well, I don't really need this, you especially need it. You need to hear this warning because this is a very real danger. And I have a very strong sense of urgency in my spirit to share this with you today because God's been speaking to me about this for quite a while. Don't get overly familiar. There's a danger in that. You've heard the old, the old phrase, familiarity breeds 
contempt. That, that came from Aesop uh, about 2,500 years ago. And, you know, a lot of phrases come and go, but this one's been around for 2,500 years. Familiarity breeds contempt. Why has it been around for 2,500 years? Because familiarity is a very real danger to relationships, none more important than our relationship with Jesus. See, there's a danger this morning that you and I, we, who have been walking with the Lord for many years, and we've been going to church for many years, we've been going to this church for many years, we can develop an attitude of familiarity with God and the things of God to such a degree that it doesn't take our breath away anymore. And if your view of God doesn't take your breath away, something else will. See, you were designed to be in awe of God, and if you're not in awe of God, you will be in awe of something. When you're not in awe of God, sin becomes more tempting because something is going to captivate you. It's either going to be the living God or it's going to be an idol. So one of the strategies that our enemy has, and he's really good at this, what he tries to do is to twist the Christian life, to twist the church into a dry, routine, mundane kind of thing where we just kind of mindlessly refer to Almighty God as if he's just Bubba. We're not in awe of God like we used to be. There, there's a danger that, that when you come to church, you know the routine so well, you can do it now without your heart in it. And, and you can sing the songs, and your heart doesn't even have to be in the same zip code. And some of you, you know what, forget some of you, me, I know, I know the routine so well, I know the words so well, it's not just that my heart doesn't have to be in the same zip code, I don't even need my head anymore. I know the song so well. I know the Bible verses so well. Clichés can just roll off my tongue without me even trying. And if we're not careful, we can become like those people that God spoke to through the prophet Isaiah. Isaiah 29 verse 13, the Lord says, These people come near me with their mouth. They honor me with their lips. But their hearts are far from me. Their worship of me is made up only of rules taught by men. Therefore, once more, I will astound these people with wonder upon wonder. Do you see what he's saying? They've become so familiar with me that their hearts aren't in the worship anymore. They're not even there. They're singing the words. They're saying the words. They're, they're doing the deal, and their hearts aren't even there. So I'm going to take their breath away. They will be in awe of me again, and I will, I will astound them with wonder upon wonder. And if you read Isaiah there, that's not a happy thought. That's actually including something called discipline. So I don't want to become like that. I want to heed the warning this morning. So I want to talk to you about the danger of familiarity. Now, before we dive into the text, which is in Mark chapter 6, if you want to start turning there, you can go ahead. But before we're, just so we're clear, before we get to there, I want to make sure we're on the same page here of what I'm saying. It's not a bad thing to want to know Jesus more and get closer to him. That's a good thing. There's a difference between intimacy and familiarity. Being overly familiar is not the same thing as just wanting to know God closer and know him better. See, the apostle Paul considered all of the successes of his life as dung compared to knowing Christ. That's what he said. And, and more than anything else this world had to offer, he wanted to know Jesus better. Here's what he said, Philippians 3.10. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. See what Paul is saying? I, I want to know Jesus so closely, so deeply, so intimately that I'm like Jesus. I want to be just like him. If he thought it, I want to think it. If he said it, I want to say it. If he did it, I want to do it. And not just the power stuff. 
I want to know him in his suffering. If, if something broke Jesus' heart, I want it to break my heart. I want to be like, I want to be just like, I want to know him. That's what we want too. That should be our passion too. And that's why we're in this, this series right now, Jesus the Miracle Worker, where we're looking at all of the miracles of Jesus and we're going through there and we're doing it secondarily so that we, we want to see Jesus do some miracles here. But our primary goal is to know him better. And knowing his miracles is part of knowing him. We want to know him better. That is what we want. So when I speak of the danger of familiarity, I'm not referring to that. I think you know this. I'm referring to uh, this lifeless, heartless, rote sort of going through the motions where our faith goes from being this life and death adventure with the most beautiful, spectacular, powerful, extraordinary being in the universe to being a list of do's and don'ts that, that you kind of mechanically go through and you check off, do all the do's, don't all the don'ts, and it makes you very familiar, but it will leave you very thirsty because religion will not quench your thirst. Only the living water can do that. So if you have your Bibles, let's go to Mark 6. It's a text that's often skipped over or sometimes preached self-servingly. And that's sad because this is very profound. And there is a warning in this text. It is pregnant with meaning. And, and we don't want to miss it. It's very applicable to where we are. In fact, let me just pray right now as we get into this. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would open our eyes to see what you're saying here. Father, that we would heed the warning and our Lord, take our breath away. Let us be in awe of who you are. Let us love Jesus more when we walk out these doors today than we did when we walked in. I pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Mark 6, verse 1. Jesus left there. Now, where is there? There is Capernaum where he did more miracles than anywhere else. In fact, if you look back in chapter 5, he's just healed a woman with an issue of blood for 12 years. He's also healed um, a little girl who was dead. He raised a little girl, he raised her from the dead. And so he's leaving a place of success and he's going home to a place where he has no honor. Jesus left there. It, it's, it, and listen, you know, sometimes when you're following Jesus, you have to leave the place of success counterintuitive. You want to stay there normally, don't you? But sometimes you got to leave there to go where God wants you to go. Jesus left there and went to his hometown, which was Nazareth, accompanied by his disciples. When the Sabbath came, he began to teach in the synagogue. Side note there, Jesus went to church. I know I said this a couple weeks ago, but just kind of pointing out, Jesus went to church. A lot of people say to me, I want to be like Jesus, but I don't want to go to church. As it turns out, not possible. I'm just throwing that out there. I'm not preaching that. I'm just saying, if you want to be like Jesus, here in the text, he's in the synagogue. Okay, moving right along. He's te- he began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were amazed. Notice, many, not everybody. Not every. Listen, guys, it's never everybody. This is a good word to us as we're following Jesus, that not everybody was amazed by Jesus. And when you take to the word, it's not going to be everybody. And you got to be okay with that. Many who heard him were amazed. Where did this man get these things, they asked. What's this 
wisdom that has been given him that he even does miracles. Isn't this the carpenter? In Greek, the word is, is, is tekton, ha tekton, the carpenter. And, and it's primarily translated as a carpenter, as somebody who works with wood, okay? Um, and most of the time, I think, we think when we hear Jesus was a carpenter, you and I, we think a trim carpenter. I mean, that's what I think. I, I think he's just a trim carpenter. But, but in, in that era, the word tekton replied to, applied to not just people who worked with wood, but masons, sculptors and smiths and so the tectone in a village was involved in the construction and the repair of buildings and he whoever the tectone was they were well known they were a significant figure in the village economy and it's interesting here it doesn't say a carpenter it says the carpenter the point is they know him everybody's familiar with him oh yeah jesus i know jesus he built my deck last spring Oh, Jesus, yeah, I know, yeah the, the, the tectone, yeah, I know the tectone, yeah, he built the fireplace where we have our fire, he did the stonery, the masonry there. I know him. They know him. Isn't this Mary's son? And notice this is a real odd uh, uh, phrase because it goes against everything in Jewish tradition. Normally it's the son of the father. It's named, they, isn't this Joseph's son is normally what they would say. But here they say, isn't this Mary's son? which there's a lot of debate about why that is. I think the best understanding is that Joseph has already passed away at this point. And I just want to say to anybody, any young people who've lost a, a father when you were young, Jesus knows how you feel. He knows how you feel. Isn't, isn't this the, the carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son? And, 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 and isn't he the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? I wonder what that felt like for Simon. Everybody else gets a J name except him. <laughs> like, how does that feel? You're at the end of the line. You know, your dad's name is Joseph. Your oldest brother's name is Jesus. Then you got James, and then you got Joseph Jr., and you got Judas, and they get to you, and they just say, we are out of J, Simon. <laughs> I don't know. And aren't his sisters here with us? We know this guy. And they took offense at him. Jesus said to them, only in his hometown, among his relatives and in his own house, is a prophet without honor. Look at verse 5. This will take your breath away. He could not do any miracles there except lay his hands on a few sick people and heal them, which seems like miracles to me, but whatever. Mark's writing it. I'm not writing it. He could not. Verse 6. And he was amazed at their lack of faith. Now, let me just point out a few things about the danger of familiarity and what happens in Nazareth on this occasion and why they didn't get to see the miracles that Jesus wanted to do. Number one, familiarity leads to blindness. It leads to blindness in a couple of areas. First, it leads to blindness to who Jesus is. See, they know Jesus so well Oh, yeah, the, the tectone. Yeah, we know him. Yeah, Jesus, he built my deck. They know him so well, they don't know him at all. In fact, because they know him as carpenter, they have trouble knowing him as Messiah and Savior. 
Now, there's a thing that goes through all the Gospel of Mark where constantly in the Gospel of Mark, demons are going, we know who you are, you're the Son of God, and humans are going, who is he? In fact, you'll see this chart. We're going to put up a chart here, and I hope you can read that. On the left, um, and, and this is borrowed from a commentary, by the way, and I'm using it with legal permission, okay, because you're allowed to do this. I uh, just want everybody to know that online. So anyway, um, so the, on the left, you have the demonic cry, and on the right, you have the human question. So in chapter 1, verse 24, this is all in Mark, a demon says, I know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Three verses later, the humans say, what is this? A new teaching and with authority. Just a few verses later, verse 34, he would not let the demons speak because they knew who he was. The demons knew who he was. Next chapter, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? They don't have a clue who he is. The demons keep telling him, though, chapter 3, verse 11, you are the son of God. Verse 41 of chapter 4, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Do you see this? They can't see it. They're blind. Chapter 5, verse 7, demon speaking again. What do you want with me, Jesus, son of the most high God? He knows who he is. Chapter 6, isn't this the carpenter? And aren't his brothers and sisters, I mean, aren't they here right here? Blind. Totally blind. Let me tell you something. Familiarity will lead you to blindness about who Jesus is. Because, yes, he was a carpenter, but he was so much more than that. And when you get overly familiar, you miss out on who Jesus really is in your life. You see, we're, we're, not, we're not talking about just somebody who worked with wood and mason here. We're, we're talking about, you know what Colossians 1 says about Jesus? It says, everything was made by him and for him, and everything holds together in him. That's who we're talking about. Everything was made by, look, this whole, this place right here and this service right here, it was by him and for him. And right now we're holding together in him. John 1 says there was nothing made, there, nothing has been made apart from him. I messed it up. I botched that verse. There is nothing made that has not, what? That has been made. Anyway, okay. You get the point. Right? Hebrews 1 says he, he holds it all together. He sustains it by his word. In other words, the last breath you just took, you took because he said you could. Yeah. That's who we're talking about. Yeah. And when you get overly familiar, you miss that. Right. And you see him as carpenter. You know, Jesus, yeah, I know Jesus. Yeah, whatever. But familiarity will not only make you blind to who Jesus is, it will make you blind to what he wants to do. See, they were so completely blinded by their familiarity with Jesus, they couldn't see that Jesus wanted to do miracles among them. I mean, he wanted to. He says he could do no miracles. And before you judge them too harshly, how often have we done the same thing? How often have we been blinded to who Jesus is because we think we know already what he's doing and what he wants to do? And how often have we missed what God wants to do in our lives and how he wants to use us? Because we're so familiar with the routines of life, with the routines of church, the Bible, the ways of God. We know it so well, we don't stop and ask the question, what are you up to, Jesus? Hey, what do you want to do? I want to participate with you. I, I, don't want you to say, I don't want to say, here's my agenda, now bless me. I want to say, what are you doing, Lord? I want to team up with you. See, Jesus often wants to do the miraculous, but we often miss it. Because we're blinded by familiarity. Let me just give you an example of how that works. Sometimes, maybe this has never happened to you. It happens to me. 
It has happened to you. What am I saying? You're just like me. Um, we know the rhythm of a church service so well that sometimes we don't listen for the Spirit's leading. You, do you realize you don't come to church to get something, although I hope you get blessed today. You don't come to get, you come to give worship to God. That's why you come to church. You're not trying to get, you're trying to give worship to him and you're here to use your gift to build up the body. But here's what happens sometimes. We get into the rhythm. We know how churches go. We find our seat. We sit in the same seat every Sunday, you know, right? We do. I mean, we do because we get in the rhythm and there's nothing wrong with rhythms except for when the rhythm blinds you to what the spirit wants to do. And sometimes we go, okay, we know we're going to have three songs or four songs, and then Pastor Carol's going to get up and have something. There's somebody have a word, you know, one brother might shout out a word from the back or whatever, and then we're going to have that, and then Tim's going to get up and speak. And we know the rhythm. But maybe you're sitting right next to somebody in that row who is in pain right now. And maybe, just maybe this morning, you're sitting in that row next to that person because the Spirit puts you there because he wants you to minister life to them. And maybe before service or after, well, not before because y'all ain't here before service, but, um, but, but after service, maybe in the greeting time or maybe after service when we're all kind of mingling around and we're fellowshipping, maybe the Lord has put you there and you need to be alert to what the Spirit is saying because maybe you're going to have a word in due season they need to hear. Or maybe they need, they need you to lay hands on them and pray for their healing. Blind. Because we're familiar. Familiarity not only leads to blindness of who Jesus is and what he wants to do, it also leads to offense. See, it wasn't just that they missed out who he was and, and what he wanted to do. They did. But beyond that, they were actively scandalized by him. <laughs> Verse 3 says, they took offense at him. The Greek word is where we get our word scandalized. In other words, they were, they were caused to stumble. And if you think that doesn't apply to you, I would just point out that in verse 2, the same people who are amazed by him in verse 2 are scandalized by him in verse 3. Listen, religious familiarity is easily offended. Because once you think you know everything, once you think you got it all down and you know how to do everything, then you get offended when God doesn't do it the way you think he should. You get offended with his people. You get offended with God. Religious people are easily offended. You know this too. Easily offended. Even the ones who love Jesus. You know, there's a story in Matthew 11. It's a fascinating story. John the Baptist, not a Baptist now, the Baptist. John the Baptist He's the one who told everybody else who Jesus was. He said, behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. But he's in jail now. You get to Matthew 11, he's in jail, and he sends word to Jesus to ask him, hey, are you the guy or should we look for somebody else? This is John the Baptist, full of the Holy Ghost in the womb. That's pretty good. <laughs> but Jesus isn't doing it the way he thinks he should do it. Come on, we know, what, what, did you, you forget how to be a Messiah, Jesus? You know, because what was, what Jesus said in Luke 4, he said part of the job of the Messiah was he would proclaim freedom for the captives, freedom for the prisoners. And where's John? In jail. And Jesus didn't get him out. 
So he sends word, are you the guy or not? And Jesus sends word back and he says, you tell John what you see in her, the blind receive their sight. He goes through this whole thing. And then he says, Matthew 11, verse six, blessed is he who does not take offense at me. Here's what he's saying. Don't get so familiar with Jesus that you think you know how he's supposed to do things. Don't get so familiar that you have no room left for mystery. There is mystery. We, we don't have a mathematical formula for why God does what he does and when he does it. You're never going to figure it all out. And one of the dangers of familiarity is that you think you can figure it out. I know him. Sure, I know him. And you think you can figure it out. And here's what happens. You shrink your ability to accept mystery and still have faith at the same time. And when that happens, when you have to have it all together in order to have faith, you're not allowed to have any mystery in your faith. What happens is this. You not only miss out on what Jesus is doing, you get offended at him for what he isn't doing. He's not doing what he's he's supposed to do. And your very familiarity with him causes you to be offended. You've heard me tell the story. We had a pastor friend who had a guy who came into his church. He didn't know the Lord. He, was, uh, he had an uh, issue with substance abuse, and that substance abuse had destroyed his family. He had lost his job. He, his wife had left and taken the kids. He lost everything. He comes into this church, this pastor friend of ours. He leads the guy to the Lord. He prays for him. He gets healed from his addiction. Uh, he gets set free. He goes to counseling with his wife. They, they reconcile, get back together. He gets his kids back. Somebody in the church offers him a job. He gets a job, making more money than he was before. This is pretty good. A year later, he leaves the church saying, my needs aren't being met. Excuse me? You got saved. You got set free from your addiction. You got your wife back. You got your kids back. And you got a new job. And, and your needs aren't being met. But see, that's what happens when you're a citizen of Nazareth. And you get so familiar that you start getting offended about what Jesus isn't doing rather than being grateful for what he is doing. Because let me tell you something, Jesus is constantly doing stuff. Oh, he's constantly doing stuff here at our church. He's constantly doing stuff in your family. He's con- and you should just be blown away. Because everything you have, you have because of grace. Not because you deserve it, because God is a good God and he loves you. Everything you have is because of grace and mercy. And you ought to be just blown away about that. <laughs> Not offended about what you don't have. Number three, familiarity also leads to a lack of power. First of all, to who Jesus is and what he's doing. Secondly, it leads to offense. You get offended. But not only that, it leads to a lack of power. See, in this text, their their familiarity with Jesus keeps them from seeing who he is. And that actually limits what can be done. I mean, look at the verse, verse five. He could not do any miracles there. This is a shocking verse because the he is not me, it's not you, it's Jesus. Now, before I say anything else about that verse, let me just acknowledge very carefully that there's been a whole lot of really bad teaching on faith in the American church, okay? Really bad. Some of it's been unbalanced, some of it's been abusive, because some have taught that faith means you're always, if you have faith, you're always going to get what you want when you want it. And that's not the teaching of the New Testament. In the New Testament, faith is not a formula. It's not a magic incantation to always get what you want when you want it. That view of faith, I think, misses out and misunderstands who God is, who we are, and our relationship with them. And further than that, it also puts a lot of guilt and shame on people 
if, if they get sick and they, ha- they aren't healed, and the, 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 even though people don't say this, what the implication is, it's your fault you're sick. If you just had more faith, you wouldn't be sick. But do you know, you read the Gospels, Jesus never once shamed somebody for being sick. Have you ever noticed that? Jesus never said, what is wrong with you with the shriveled hand? Why you got a shriveled hand? What's wrong? You don't come to church like that? Jesus never does. He, what, you're, you're paralyzed for the paralytic. What, why are you, what is wrong with you? He doesn't do that. He doesn't shame people, so we shouldn't do that either, okay? So here, here's why, here's the point. A lot of people talk about faith, but they take it out of the context of the kingdom of God and where we are. And, and this is very important to hear because how you re- this will affect how you read the New Testament. We live right now in the already, not yet, of the kingdom of God. And what I mean by that is Jesus already brought the kingdom. Jesus inaugurated the kingdom. He established it. He proclaimed it. He demonstrated the kingdom by healing people. He says, behold, you know, uh, the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. That's right at the beginning of Mark 1, like, I don't know, verse 15 or something. Right towards the beginning. And he said, the kingdom is here. And he started healing people as a foretaste of what the fullness of the kingdom would be. However, we live in the already, it's already here, but it's not yet consummated. Meaning Jesus is going to return, there's going to be the fullness of the kingdom, and death will be gone forever. Disease will be gone forever. There will be no more cancer. Oh, I'm looking forward to that day. But we live in the in-between. So, so we should be seeing miracles because the kingdom is here. We should be seeing it. But, but, but people still die. Right? I mean, look, the, the, the apostles, they all died. The initial apostles, Peter, Paul, you know, John, they, they died. And it wasn't that they didn't have faith. They had a lot of faith. But they died because we live in the in-between, you guys. So that means... There's stuff that happens we don't understand. Should we be seeing miracles? Absolutely. Because I want to be clear about something. I am a continuationist. I believe God still does stuff like that. He still heals people. He still gives gifts of the Spirit. Nowhere in the Bible did the Holy Spirit retire. He still does that. And at the same time, we live in a fallen, sinful world, and we're not in the fullness, the consummation of the kingdom yet. So stuff happens we don't understand. And we don't need to be shaming other people. If you just have faith, you wouldn't be there. No, come on, go on. I mean, there's a weird story. Second Kings 13, I think it is, where Elisha the prophet, the text says, he got an illness and died. Got an illness and died. Now, did he not have faith? Or I think he had faith. You read some, a lot of pretty cool stories. And then... After he died, they just kind of throw him in a cave. There's some marauding people coming into where the Israelites were. One of their guys dies. They don't have time to do official burial. They just take his body and throw it into the cave where Elijah's bones were. When the dead dude hits Elijah's bones, he comes to life. Now, get this. This this is a bizarre story because he had an illness and died. And yet there was enough power of God in his bones to bring the dead to life. What in the world? Answer, I don't know. I don't know how that works. But, but do you follow what I'm saying here? The, the importance is you can't, you don't always know why certain things happen. And 
as I affirm that, I want to say at the same time, this text is saying we have something to do with what Jesus does. He says he couldn't do any miracles because of their lack of faith. So I don't think just if we have faith, everything goes our way all the time, but we need to have faith because Jesus doesn't necessarily act apart from our faith. See, Jesus, he can do whatever he wants. He's sovereign, right? And what does sovereign mean? It means the ability to do as you please. And he has it. He has both the right and the ability to do whatever he wants to. But do you know what he wants to do? He wants to call us to cooperate with him. He's asking us to display faith, to trust him, to serve him, to, wait for it, obey him. And he's inviting us into that process. See, this text says that the citizens of Nazareth and Jesus' own family, his own family is here. Because of their familiarity, they responded to the word in such a way that Jesus could not do any miracles there. And listen, guys, I never want that to be said of me. I I never want it to be said of New Life Church. I mean, if it's true, I want it to be said. I just don't ever want it to be true. Well, Jesus couldn't do any miracles there because they're lack of faith. Oh, no, no. No. Because we're going for it. We trust him. All of our hope, all of our trust, all of our faith is in Jesus Christ. So that can't be said about us. Look at verse 6. This this may be the most shocking verse of the whole text. Verse 6. He was amazed at their lack of faith. Do you notice not many things in in the Bible amaze Jesus? Not very many. He almost never gets amazed or surprised or taken off guard. Almost never shocked or amazed Jesus in the Gospels except for two solitary exceptions. Number one, the presence of faith where you wouldn't expect it. And number two, the absence of faith where you would. These are the only two things that amaze Jesus. Luke, Luke 7, there's a centurion that's got this servant that's ill and some friends of his, uh, you know, their Jews come and say, hey, Jesus, uh, this is the centurion, he's got this servant who's ill and he deserves to have you come do this because he built the synagogue for us. And Jesus is like, all right, let's go. He starts walking to his house. The centurion hears about it and says, no, no, he sends word. He sends word and said, listen, I'm a man under authority. I understand authority. I tell one guy, go, he goes. I tell another one, come, he comes. So you just say the word. And my servant will be healed. And what did Jesus say? I mean, this is a centurion. This is a Roman centurion. This is not a Jew. He didn't know God's word. And yet he had more faith. What did Jesus say? In, in Luke chapter 7, verse 9, when Jesus heard this, he was amazed at him. And turning to the crowd following him, he said, I tell you, I have not found such great faith even in Israel. Isn't it interesting? The centurion was talking about authority, but Jesus said, I haven't seen that kind of great faith. So apparently there's something between understanding Jesus' authority and having great faith. So here's what's been working inside of me lately. I've been asking myself the question, who am I more like? Am I more like the guy, like the centurion who would amaze Jesus because of my faith and seeing his authority? Or am I more like the citizens of Nazareth who would amaze Jesus with my lack of faith? See, I've been in and around church uh, for a long time. If you include the womb, 51 plus years. Because I was in church before I was in the world. I, I, in my mother's womb, okay? And then I was born on a Sunday morning during church. And then I was at church the next Sunday morning. and have been here ever since. 
Here's my point. I am the modern equivalent of the citizens of Nazareth. Jesus family, that's who I am. And that means that there's a very real danger for me that familiarity with God and the things of God, if I allow it to, could drain my faith and cause me to miss out on what Jesus wants to do in me and through me. So I don't want to be like that. The point of a danger sign, a warning sign, is to avoid the danger. So what do we do? Let me just, let me just close with this. How do we recover a sense of awe? How do we avoid this over-familiarity, right? We've been, we want to do the things of God. We want to learn the things of God. How do we avoid this sort of, okay, you know, a ho-hum, it's just rote, lifeless, you know, going through the motions. How do we avoid that? Well, let me just give you a couple of suggestions beyond recognizing it and avoiding it. Here's a couple things. Number one, study the scripture about God. Get some scriptures that talk about who God is. You guys know that in the last several years, God's really done a new thing in me. Um, and, and part of it has uh, arisen from a deeper understanding of the gospel and understanding who I am because of the gospel. And so I have a whole list of scriptures and statements, actually, that I pray and recite every morning. Usually it's before I get out of bed. Sometimes it's in the shower. Sometimes driving to work. Sometimes I quote them 10 times a day just to remind me who I am. Because of Jesus. I mean, and I could just go through them, you know, really quickly. I have the references, but I turn them into statements. The Lord loves me with an everlasting love. The Lord rejoices over me with singing and dancing. Because I trust Jesus, I am holy and blameless in his sight. I'm the apple of God's eye. I'm precious in God's sight. The Lord delights in me. I am forgiven, perfected forever, and free from condemnation because of what Jesus did for me. Jesus will never leave me or forsake me. I'm his dear child. Now, I say that every day, sometimes 10 times a day. And you know what? That's one spiritual discipline has picked me up out of a pit and put my feet on a rock. But lately I've been adding another list. I got a whole nother list because I'm going to a whole new place. And this other list isn't anything about me. It's all about who God is. Because sometimes earlier the, the word at the end of worship was sometimes we're looking at the wrong thing, right? You get, when you look at the wrong thing, you get hopeless. So I got a whole list of scriptures. I'll just give you a few of them. Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all who live in it. That's who I'm in relationship. It all belongs to him. Uh, Psalm 145. Great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. His greatness no one can fathom. One generation commends your works to another. They will tell of your mighty acts. They speak of the glorious splendor of your majesty, and I will meditate on your wonderful works. Ooh, this is good. See, you start, you, you start reading these scriptures about who God is, man, it changes things. Uh, Daniel 6, for he is the living God and he endures forever. His kingdom will not be destroyed. His dominion will never end. He rescues and he saves. He performs signs and wonders in the heavens and on the earth. Or how about this verse in Job after, after Job has laid out his complaints and all his friends have said what they're going to say, God says, now stand up like a man and answer my questions. And among them, one of my favorites is, hey, Job, where were you when I spoke to the ocean and said, stop right there, and it obeyed me? And God was God to Job. So after that, Job has something to say, and he says this, Job 42.2, I know that you can do all things. No purpose of yours can be thwarted. Or how about Acts 17, verse 24? The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He is not served by human hands as if he needed anything 
Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. Do you see what that's saying? You have life because God gave it to you. You have breath because God gave it to you. You have whatever you have because God gave it to you. Because, verse 28, in him we live and move and have our being. This is, I don't even have time to go into other texts like Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah said, I saw the Lord high and lifted up and his train filled the temple and, and, there, and there's smoke and there's glory and there's these cherubim flying around with six wings and they can't, God's so majestic, their voice is so loud, it shakes the temple, but they're so powerful, but yet they won't even look at Almighty. They're covering their face with their wings and what are they saying? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with his glory. Or how about Revelation 5 when John gets to see into the throne room and there at the throne is it says there were thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000 angels. For those of you playing along at home doing the math, that's 100 million. 100 million angels circling the throne and what are they saying? Worthy is the lamb. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. Let me tell you something. You just start meditating on those scriptures about who God is, his greatness, his majesty, and his power. And the natural result of that is you're in awe of him. It will take your breath away. And when that happens, all your problems, you recognize your problems are not his equal. No one and nothing is his equal. So the first thing to recover the sense of awe is, is study scripture about God. Number two, remind yourself of the gospel. Remind, remember that this sovereign, powerful, majestic, great God came for you. He knows everything about you. He knows all the stuff you don't want me to know about you. He knows all the stuff you don't want up on that screen for everybody else to know. He knows all of that, and he still comes for you. Somebody loves you that much. Remind yourself of the gospel and remind yourself, I didn't deserve it. I didn't deserve it, and I didn't save myself. I was seeing an interview not long ago. It was a guy, uh, he's a pastor down in Texas named Robert Morrison. And he was in this interview and uh, his wife, they were interviewing his wife because Robert Morris, he gives stuff away all the time. Like he's given away a number of cars. He's given away their house twice. Can you imagine? Your wife comes home, "Uh, honey, I gave away the house. (laughs) Again? (laughs) Like, and so they asked his wife, like, how do you feel about that? And her answer was interesting. She said, listen, if you had lived with him before he got born again, you wouldn't even ask me the question. Because he wasn't a good guy before he got saved. And he said, let me just tell you, it's night and day. So I can put up with him giving away the house every once in a while. <laughs> and then they asked her, why do you think he does that? And I will never forget her answer. She said, I don't think he ever got over being saved. He he realized I'm the least likely person that Jesus would ever save. I am the least likely person on the planet earth that he would call into ministry. And yet here I am. And he was so cut. He just never got over it. So he's always giving stuff away. You know what, guys? I hope we never get over the gospel. I hope we never get over the fact that we're saved. I hope, God God forbid that we ever are able to look at the cross without being moved to tears of what Jesus did for us. 
So if you focus on that, focus on the scriptures of who God is, remind yourself of the gospel, there will be a sense of awe that will return and it will protect you from the danger of familiarity. Let's pray.